that was an excellent uh <laughs> you're an excellent recorder player. player i mean yeah hot cross buns like no no one's heard this. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. Well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. I'm sitting here today. Well, I'm not here today. Josh is in Seattle. I'm here in Wenatchee, but Josh Paulus. Josh, I know you because you know somebody who knows my daughter, Mackenzie. So that's how we got connected. And you were introduced to me as a musician who played with the Seattle Symphony you corrected me and said you were a freelance French horn player. So I'm going to call you a gunslinger. Yeah. Because you're like, yeah. play for hire. So Exactly. Why don't we, let me put you on the spot. Um, well, the other thing I know is University of Dayton. Yeah. So is that the Flyers? That's the Flyers, yeah. Go Dayton Flyers. Yeah, I flew into that airport, the Dayton airport, one time to go see my kids and it was like a flashback to the fifties. It was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> have you ever flown out of Dayton? Oh, sure have. Yeah. Okay. So the, just not nothing related to Washington, but so I go to see my kids because they were living in Cincinnati, and back then, this would be you know fifteen, sixteen years ago, airfare into the Cincinnati airport, which is in Kentucky, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. It's not in mm-hmm. Cincinnati. Was the second most expensive airport to fly into in the United States. It yeah. had all these. Okay. So it was brutally expensive to fly from Seattle to Cincinnati. It was just like six, $800, you know, and um, it just sucked. Anyway, I could fly into Dayton for one ninety seven. Yeah. Okay. So, to, but to, and, and really Dayton to their house was closer than Cincinnati airport to their house. So it was great. But the, I flew into Dayton and I, you know, you can't fly from Seattle to Dayton. There's no nonstops, or at least there wasn't then. And I had to fly into Detroit. And have you ever been to the Detroit airport? Probably, but that wouldn't, I mean, I feel like if I was going to connect somewhere, probably would have been Chicago. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I connected in Chicago a lot, but anyway, one time I had to fly into Detroit. All right, fine. So I get to Detroit and there's, it's pretty cool. They have these monorails going through back then. It was uh Northwest Orient was, you know, now it's Delta bought Northwest. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So now it's the you know burning call for flight number 101 to Dayton, you know, all passengers, blah, blah. I'm the only person on the plane, literally <laughs> one person. It was on one of those little commuter jets, you know, that hold 60 people or so. And I'm like, can I sit anywhere? No, you have to sit in your assigned seat. Like, it's creepy flying on a commercial plane when it's, you're the only, even if it's only like a 20 minute flight, because literally Detroit to Dayton's like a taxi ride. I mean, an right. airplane is like, you go, you go up, you go down, you're there. Anyway, that's. But I remember getting off the uh, off the plane and looking around, going, "I've flown into the 1950s." That airport mm-hmm. was really cool. Dayton's yeah. a cool little town. It is, yeah. And it's, you know, I still have family there. It's it's up and coming for sure. So, did you grow up in Dayton? No, I actually grew up in Maryland. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so far we've got no connections to Washington State. This is a perfect well, start you know, to our show. Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, all right. So, you grew up in Maryland. I mean, let's build the backstory. So, you grew up in Maryland. Yeah. Um, when did you get involved in music? Well, I mean, I, I got involved in music at a, at a pretty young age, you know, started with recorder, you know, I, I don't know, maybe (laughs) three or four, you know, I was, I was an excellent, uh, 
<laughs> you're an excellent recorder player. player. I mean, yeah, hot cross buns, like no, no one's business. Oh my um, gosh. Okay. I love and it. And then, uh, you know, then I, you know, transitioned to piano. Um, and then I went to, uh, like a kindergarten through eight, um, school it was pretty small, like 30 kids, um, okay. per class per grade. Um, and then fourth grade was when the, the band program started. Uh, as much as I, I liked playing piano, I wanted to, wanted to play in the band and I had, I had, uh, you know, visions in my head of, of being a, a drummer, a great percussionist. Uh, but the little, you know, the little middle school band already had, you know, eight percussionists in a, you know, like a 35 piece band. <laughs> like, I'm not going to be one of nine. Um, so it was really cool because uh, we, you know, it, it was the sizes of the classes were small enough that they, they brought us into the gym and laid out all of the instruments on the floor and were like, you know, try them. You know, see what you like, what calls to you. Um, and so oh, I, I can you only know, imagine the noise that the was being cacophony. created. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That would be, okay. Sorry. My ears yeah. hurt from that. Okay. I, I'm, yeah, I'm sure they do. Yeah. Uh, so obviously the French horn is a pretty unique looking instrument. Um, so I was, I was drawn to it and I, I went over not knowing anything about how to make an embouchure or, you know, how to produce any kind of sound, went over there and just you know, made this huge blast of noise. I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then everyone heard it and lined up and, and tried to play and no one could play. So I was like, you know, I made this really cool noise and no one else can do that. So I must be, I must be special, you know? Um, so then I decided that I was going to play French horn. So that was, uh, that was my foray into the, to the brass, the brass arts. So let me see if I understand that correctly. You, Picked a horn up off the floor of the gym that looked cool. Yeah. And that was your career start. That was that was it. Yeah. There were okay. a lot of uh you know, a lot of inflection points along the way, but that's <laughs> got me we're boiling it down to, we're boiling it down to its <laughs> essence. You picked the instrument up off the floor. Okay. Yeah. Looks right, cool, so you, makes noise. Off we I'm go. In. Yeah. All right. So so you started playing the French horn. Um at what point in your youth did you realize that this this really spoke to you and that it's something you wanted to continue on past, you know, elementary school band? That's a good that's a good question. I mean, um for all of my youth, so to speak, I was a much more serious athlete than I was a musician. Um I I mean, I wrestled and played basketball, but my main sport was soccer. Um okay. so um I, you know, I played on a bunch of teams in high school and was like all state and did like Olympic developmental program. So I was really busy with that. Oh. Um, okay. But once, once I got to high school, I was still, you know, playing horn and I took lessons and, you know, thankful that my, my parents um, continued to invest in me, even though I didn't always practice that much. Um, but I got this, uh, my, my teacher um, who was a professor at the university of Delaware, um, when I was a junior in high school, told me about this uh, brass ensemble up in Philadelphia. Um, and since we lived basically on the state line of Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania, um, okay. Philly was less than an hour from my house. Um, so I went up and took the audition, and by by some miracle, um, I was invited to join this brass ensemble, which was amazing i mean all these like really high level musicians from you know new york new jersey delaware Maryland. i mean it was like you know everyone was there played great and then 
that ensemble was also tangentially connected to the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra and to the Settlement Music School. So I went from um, sort of like, you know, playing, playing, you know, high school and doing some like district honor bands and stuff. And then I was, you know, playing with the Philly Youth Orchestra and I was on, you know, NPR from the top of the Woodwind Quintet. And then I got an opportunity to, you know, tour Europe with the orchestra. I mean, it was just all these all these cascading, um, incredible, incredible opportunities. I was like, wow, I mean, if this is, you know, if this is what I can expect, I should, I should see this, you know, I should, I want to continue doing this in school. Um, so when I was looking at schools, um, I, I wanted a place where I, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a musician necessarily at that point. Um, so I wanted a school where I could double major, in in music in a sort of like a more technical field um and then also play soccer um okay so i visited a lot of schools and um you know met with the horn professors and the and soccer coaches and um in the end i only uh, i only applied to to two schools i applied to johns hopkins and peabody um and then university of dayton which is actually where my my parents went to school and met um, and then oh, I have family okay. there as well. Um, okay. and I, I really, I love the vibe. Um, I love the campus and just a lot of really great people there. Um, and so that's, you know, I started off, you know, kind of doing all those things, double majoring and playing soccer. What um, was the second major in? Uh, it was math. So let me just stop you. Let me, let me recap this. Cause you were majoring in music, mm-hmm. playing soccer. Mm-hmm. Playing the French horn at the college level, which requires a lot of work, mm-hmm. and then for fun, a second degree in math. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't finish the degree, but I started. But, <laughs> I started so, off, yeah, you didn't have very much going on during your college year. So, what did you do for fun? Uh, well, I also, I did, I, I also like, you know, had a girlfriend, and yeah, you know, it was, oh. yeah, it was, you okay. know, tried to fill all of my waking it, and sleeping waking, hours. It, Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, <laughs> sorry. Anyway. So, before we go down this a little bit further, let me stop you. So, you said John, John, is it John's or John Hopkins? It's John's uh, Hopkins. John's, yeah. Right? John's Hopkins. Hopkin. Which is a really prestigious school. Yep. No offense to the University of Dayton. I don't, living in Washington, which in the, you know, at the time we're on, it's 13 minutes. That's the first time we've said the word Washington in the, it's probably a record for us. Um, <laughs> but g- given my very limited knowledge, I don't hold the University of Dayton and Johns Hopkins at the same academic level. No disrespect. What made you pick University of Dayton over? Or, well, yeah, why, why those two schools? Why did you apply to just those two schools? That'd be like, to me, it'd be like somebody saying, oh, I applied to Harvard and to... Chesapeake Valley Community College. Seems like a weird. I I'm, I know I'm wrong, well, but it just seems like a weird. I mean, I was in I was in a, a fairly I was in a fairly advantageous position um, in that I had, um, you know, a, a very high level academic background. Okay. Um, okay. You know, I was like the speaker of the you know of the graduating class like in the top five of like a four oh, so you're your valedictorian class. as well 
Uh, I, I don't think I was like the number one, but it was, you know, oh, okay. it was pretty okay. close. Um, and really good SATs and national merit plus the high level athletics and music. So I, <laughs> I didn't, I just, I, I wanted to apply to the places that, you know, like spoke to me and made sense and where I thought that I could see myself being successful. Um, okay. and, um, while I did get a scholarship at, at Johns Hopkins, I got like a full ride plus money on top at university of Dayton. Um, okay. and so that was a, that was, I think probably the deciding factor. Um, but also looking back, um, it was important for me as a musician to go to university of Dayton, which does not has a very good music program. I'm uh, certainly not at the same level as Peabody conservatory. Um, but it was important for me to be able to do a lot of playing and performing right yeah. away, which is not the way it would have been at Peabody. Okay. Um, okay. so there were a lot of reasons, um, I, obviously the financial, you know, the part well, of it hey, is not insignificant. College is not inexpensive. And if somebody's going to offer you a full ride and cover, cover living expenses, that's, that's hard to turn down Yeah, for, for anybody. Okay. And sorry, I was just kind of teasing about the, the whole perceived um, <laughs> level. I, I, cause I don't know anything about either, either school's music program. So, I mean, okay. So your your undergrad years, your freshman sophomore years, you you got to play a lot because of the way the University of Dayton's music program was configured. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you got a lot more um, times to pick the horn up off the gymnasium floor and make it make noise mm -hmm. versus okay, cool. Yeah. All right. What was what was this college for you? It's it's interesting talking to musicians when they go to school. They you, you all you have these very similar. Uh, did you spend a lot of time in the in the practice halls? I mean, were you were you one I of did. those? Uh, so, like when I went to college, I went to I went to Central Washington University, which uh, it had it back when I went there, and it's, it had a really renowned jazz program. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a as a kid of the seventies, I didn't grow up on jazz. I grew up on you know arena rock and the Beatles. Um, and so when I go to college and my roommates are in jazz, not my roommates, but the next door neighbors are in jazz band and they're coming and going at all hours of the night, playing their instruments at all hours of the day and night. It was a really weird experience to me. And, you know, if, if they weren't in their dorm room, they were in a practice hall and they were just, um, you know, obsessed. Yeah. Was that how you, your college experience was for you? Were you, were you like obsessed with, with, with the horn and practice or? Um, that was definitely how my graduate school experience was for sure. Okay. Um, okay. I got, I mean, I practiced, a, I mean, I practiced a lot the first two years, but I, as I, you know, as we talked about, I also had the soccer and the, you know, and the math major as well. So, um, <laughs> yeah. I, at the, I mean, I was getting a little burnout, like as, as I, many yeah. people would be with kind of all those things going on. Um, and so I, my, my advisor and mentor was a, was my horn professor. I mean, he was someone that I that I looked up to a lot. Um, and kind of at the end of my sophomore year, I I had a chat with him. Um, I was the oldest person, the oldest of my cousins, essentially to to like go to school. And there was sort of like all of my you know uncles, at least on my dad's side, were you know engineers, and there was. 
because I think of my high academic uh, background, there was a lot of expectation about what I was going to do. Um, and there was not a lot of acceptance. There was like, okay, well, you know, what are you going to do for work? If you're music, you know, what are you going to do for, for this, for that? <laughs> um, and so I was a little hesitant to, to put all my eggs in one basket, you know? Um, and so I, I had a talk with him about it. He's like, well, what do you, what do you like, what do you like to do the best? Um, I was like, cause you know, I've been around a lot of musicians, a lot of horn players. And if you want, you have what it takes. Um, it's like, you can, you're smart enough. You are driven enough that if this doesn't work out, you can do anything you want, but you're never going to know unless you, you know, really go for it. Um, uh, so what happened was I, I left the soccer team, um, and I dropped the math major. Okay. Um, so the last two years I was only, um, a horn performance major. Um, and obviously at that point I started practicing significantly more, yeah. spending a lot of time in the practice room. Um, and sort of another benefit to university of Dayton, um, as compared to, um, to the Hopkins and Peabody combo um, was something I learned when I did my visit and spoke, you know, spoke to my advisor um, and that he would, um, if he deemed his students capable and ready enough, he would bring them in to play with the Dayton Philharmonic, like to get professional experience okay. while they were still in undergrad. Um, and that became really important for me because from my junior year on, I started playing professionally. So I would, I would, you know, play as an extra or come in for education concerts or, you know, I started to get a lot of experience about how to be a professional and what kind of work and, you know, what, what that took. Okay. Uh, and then that sort of springboarded me into, into stuff in grad school as well. Okay. And where did you do your grad grad work at? Uh, Northwestern up in Chicago. Okay. So we're working our way west towards Washington. We're getting there. We're getting there slowly. Okay. Um, did you enjoy your time in Chicago? I did. Okay. I wish that I had been there longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, well, not obviously, um, but the Northwestern campus is in Evanston, so it's not technically Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, obviously I spent time at campus, but I also was playing a lot um i was playing in milwaukee and i was playing in and around chicago but i didn't i don't really feel like i got the full chicago experience um but what i got i i did enjoy a lot and the school was fantastic i mean it's one of the one of the best programs all right so actually i warned you okay so this is the way my brain works so dayton's close enough to cincinnati that you at least went to cincinnati once in a while right Mm -hmm. yeah Gold Star or Skyline? Skyline. At least see, you knew the answer. I mean, you knew you knew you knew the question. No, very few people <laughs> will ever get that. Okay. Did you like those though? Did you like Skyline? Did you? I mean, and be honest here, because I'm looking at your face, and it's okay to say no. I mean, not. It was never going to be my first choice. I just remember. Okay, so. First time I went to see my kids after they moved there, right? They were all excited. We're gonna, we want you to go to Skyline with us. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. I'm just like, what on earth is this? 
was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, oh, I, you man. know, and yeah. every, not every, but communities have these things that are like, um, iconic within Cincinnati. Like I, Cincinnati style chili doesn't play well in Milwaukee. You know, it, at least I don't think it right. does. It, it certainly doesn't play well here in, in Washington state. All right. So then I don't know the names of the deep dish pizza places in Chicago, but did you, did you have a preference there for Chicago deep dish pizza? I, I didn't, I, I, to be honest, I always preferred New York style. I, I like it thin. Okay. I don't that's like all right. it. I, that's okay. Don't, don't love the cheese. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. So that's completely fine answer. See, I warned you that this would be, they, they wouldn't necessarily be, there'd be simple questions, but not necessarily easy to answer. Okay. Grad work, Northwestern. So let's, now you, you, you finished your grad degree. What were you going to do mm-hmm. with it? Uh, well, while I was in grad school, besides obviously doing all the grad work and playing with all these professional groups, I was taking professional auditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe three months before I graduated, I won a job in New Orleans. Um, Wait, so we're going away from I Washington knew, again. Okay, sorry, just kidding. Well, we're still like sort of you yeah, know, moving we're, in that we're direction. Moving. We're, we're yeah. moving. We're moving. All right. <laughs> we're moving. We're moving. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So after I, I knew I already had some, something lined up after graduation. Um, so, uh, moved down to new Orleans and I was there for five or five or six years, okay. um, playing with the orchestra full time. And then I picked up a teaching position at, um, Loyola university down there. And then I was also working as a, as a trainer at a CrossFit gym oh, okay. where I met my wife. Okay. Um, you know, doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, okay. having having a good time. All right. Yeah. So you left New Orleans. We did, yeah. Why and where? Uh well, why? I think that we we both knew it was not our our forever home. Okay. Um it was a great place to be. Um I think that we felt like we having you know, I spent, you know, five or six years. My wife was there for six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, she also coincidentally is from Maryland, even though we met in New Orleans. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, right. pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, it was it was time. It was time for us to go. Okay. Um, and my my wife had, had always had kind of a uh, a love affair with, with the West Coast. So she... Um, started looking at jobs out, you know, mostly in San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and she got a job out here. And I, at that point, just took a year sabbatical to move out, um, but loved it so much that I resigned all my positions in New Orleans. And that's when I started to freelance um, all up and down the West Coast. Okay. What does your wife do for a career? Well, what brought her out was um, she has her her master's in public health. Um, So she was doing quality improvement consulting for the whole state of Washington, sort of liaisoning for CMS, like Medicaid and Medicare and all the individual providers. Um, But now she works for the University of Washington um, and she's... uh, director of operations for the dog aging project, um, which is, I don't know if you've, you've heard about it, um, but it's the, the largest 
longitudinal study on healthy aging and dogs in in the world right now. It's pretty exciting. Interesting. That's that's we could, well, we won't go down that one, but okay. Wow, that's very cool. We, I mean, we could. Yeah. It's it's pretty interesting. That's, that's, <laughs> I'm thinking maybe we'll have a, a second conversation about that. All right. So you moved out here. You you found what did you find about Washington that resonated with you? I think I think the the easy answer for me um, is is the is the mountains. There's something about them having them be a part of your daily life sort of reminds you that there's something bigger than yourself. Um, it's really grounding, really powerful. Um, but I mean, I think that the, I don't know, Pacific Northwest is a total package. I mean, great outdoors access, great weather, especially if you can figure out something to do outside, um, in the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, the summers are incredible, good, you know, good people. Um, I think the, not to, I don't know. I think the political climate as well is something that, that drew us out here and draws a lot of people here. Um, water, mountains, okay. forest, camping, hiking, skiing, you know, so left the out whole coffee. ball of wax. I mean, I, you know. Well, I mean. Which is water. I, I did leave out coffee. It is, yeah. yeah you know. Okay. All right. <laughs> you know, okay. Well, if we're going to put coffee in there, then we could put wine in as well. Yeah, that's true. You know, coffee and wine. Yeah, exactly. Drinkers, and yeah. beer, too. Yeah. They've got, it's got a, uh, yeah. okay. So you moved out here. You took a year sabbatical. You, mm -hmm. you know, I'm jokingly going to call you this hired gun, but have horn will travel. How how does that how does that work? I mean, are the are the symphonies in? Why does the symphony need need you? Because they're they're French horn players taking a sabbatical or is on vacation or how does that work? Yeah, well, there there's a there can be a number of reasons. Um, Sometimes, um, sometimes there will be a vacancy either because someone has retired or moved on and they haven't been able to fill it. Um, so they'll need someone to step in for a period of time. Um, sometimes the, there will be so many performances that they don't have enough musicians to cover all of the parts. Um, sometimes there will be a piece that calls for more horn players than there are um, musicians, okay. um, like specifically, you know, two composers that come to mind are, are Richard Strauss and Gustav Mahler. They would often write for like eight horns and most orchestras, um, you know, four is a regular number. Five is a, is a pretty typical number for the big orchestras, but you know, Seattle symphony and Chicago and LA, like the biggest orchestras generally have six, but even then, um, it still isn't enough to cover eight parts. Um, so, and then, you know, people will get sick, people will take time off. I mean, there's always kind of a, a sometimes, you know, a need for, for people to come in. All right. Classical music's not my expertise. Okay. Um, okay. My, my son played bassoon in um, U Symphony in Tacoma. He took bassoon lessons from a very um, wonderful person who I got to know. And so I would listen to her as, you know, she says she's practicing because she could play for the Seattle Symphony once in a while, play for the Tacoma Symphony, things like that. So I got the impression that there was a lot of practicing as, as a group. Mm -hmm. You get a call from San Francisco saying, hey, we need you 
to help us out, how do you prepare for, uh, I mean, are you going down to San Francisco now for two weeks to practice? Or are you doing this? Room? How, how does that happen? Well, the, I mean, so generally, um, there will be a maximum of four or five rehearsals for any given show. Okay. Um, there in, in the season, um, basically every week is a different program okay. unless you're talking about an opera, in which case that will go for about a month. Okay. Um, but for just specific orchestra stuff, um, every week is a different program. Mm. Sometimes a week we'll have two or three programs that are running concurrently. Um, so depending on how far, you know, in advance, um, you, you know, practice your part and then you, the symphony, um, will do the rehearsals and then the concerts. Um, but if someone calls in sick, mm -hmm. um, I had this happen a couple of times with San Francisco, I would get a call on a Monday. Um, can you be here tomorrow for a 10 AM rehearsal and stay the week? Um, and obviously that's a different, you have to sort of rely on, um, on your, on your musical, I mean, there's not, there's only so much practicing you can do. So you have to rely on your sight reading abilities and, um, know that over the rehearsals, you're going to, you're going to pick it up. Okay. Wow. That seems like it'd be a lot of pressure. It is. Yeah. It, it, um, but you know, that's that kind of comes with, with being the, being the hired gunslinger. <laughs> hornslinger. We'll call you the hornslinger. Yeah, the hornslinger. Yeah. The hornslinger. All right. So now that you're based in the Seattle area, what mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, we do like to keep the show just Washington state, but you know, I'll ask you this in the, on the West coast, what symphonies have you performed with? Uh, well, I'll start south and work my way up. Okay. Um, San Diego, um, Pacific Symphony, which is just outside of L.A., San Francisco. Um, I did a one-off thing with San Francisco Opera, um, Utah Symphony, um, Seattle. Symphony and Opera, um, Juno Symphony up in Alaska. Huh. Uh, Denver, I played in Colorado. Um, not that that's necessarily the uh, coast, but yeah. close enough. Um, maybe there may be another, but those those are the the highlights. Those are the highlights. And then obviously did some stuff for um, recordings for movies and video games. All right, put you on the spot with an, you know these are next to impossible questions. Would you would you prefer to perform with a symphony or would you prefer to record for, a, you know, movies or games? I I prefer to play live to play to play with the symphonies. Yeah. Why is that for you then? What what is it about? Is it is it that there's an audience and a reaction to what's being done? Okay. Yeah, there's there's an audience, there's um, spontaneity, there's sort of a give and take. Um, as fun as as fun as recording sessions. Oh my goodness, 
Is it something to do with the formal wear that you have, you get to wear? Is that maybe? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I wouldn't, I mean, that sort of is just, uh, uh, well, okay. Uh, I don't love, I don't love wearing tails to be honest. Okay. Um, you know, a nice, it, it's, it's nice to like be, be wearing a nice suit and, and, you know, everyone's got their, you know, obviously I played sports. So everyone's got a uniform. It's nice when, when everyone looks right. good and comes together and, and sounds good. Um, it is nice in the studio um, to just kind of roll in in jeans and a t-shirt. I gotta be honest with you. That's see, to me okay. So when I think of like classical music symphonies, you know, you're, you're wearing, you know, you're wearing a tuxedo, maybe tails, whatever. You're, you're you're all dressed up. You all look relatively uniform. It's a uniform, and then I can imagine that same group of people coming in in their, you know, their civilian clothes. And I, my suspicion is that you wouldn't be quite as on point just because, you know. Bill, the bassoon player's got a blue shirt on that has got a stain on the collar and you're distracted when you're playing. I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm not a musician, you know, but it just, to me, I, one of the things about symphony music that I find, I do enjoy the, the, uh, the pageantry. Yes, I do. You yeah. know, it's, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. Anyway. All right. Uh, you know, I, every, you know, we're on our civvies, so to speak, uh, for all of our rehearsals. Sure, uh, sure. But, you know, but yeah, uh, you're not you're not all wearing yeah. you know your your practice tuxedos and formal gowns. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let me. So, one of the questions I love to ask musicians, um, and for you, given there's not as many symphony halls as there are, you know, music, you know, music venues for more like pop, you know, jazz, rock and roll, things like that, country music. On the West Coast, and I'll allow you to include Denver if you need to. Okay, so let's just keep it Denver as far east as I'll let you go. Okay. What's the, for you as a performer, the best venue that you've played at? Um, wow. That's a, that's pretty tough because we're you know like you said we're excluding I I've done a, a few tours in Europe and there are some pretty pretty great halls there but if we're just going to keep it on the West Coast um, you know I I gotta say I do like I do like Benaroya Hall okay which is Seattle's own um, so it's yeah it's it's it sounds sounds great on stage okay. Um, it's a pretty classic design, like a shoebox design, um, and it, yeah, it just it feels really comfortable and sounds good. All right, so that and that's 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 why I'm, you know as a performer, okay, so you like that. As a audience member now, West mm-hmm. Coast, where's a great place for you to see music being performed? Well, I will say that the halls in LA and San Francisco are are unique in that they have some seating. It's a little bit more of seating in the round, so there are spots on the side and behind the orchestra, which I think is is a view that a lot of people don't get and is a pretty 
you kind of get to see how the how the sausage is made so to speak right. which um you get closer you get to you get a sort of a different auditory and visual perspective which i think is um okay i don't know i think that's pretty unique i like that all right well in in sense once again we're working with a limited pool of of choices here where would you like to perform that you haven't been able to perform yet and i'll open that up you can say anywhere for that Wow. Um, well, um, we, right before um, COVID, I was supposed to go on tour with um, San Francisco Symphony. It was a big, um, I don't know, three or four week European tour. Um, and there were there were some big halls that I hadn't got to play in uh, to that point, um, which probably now with with sort of the pivot that I've done won't 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 have the opportunity to play in mm-hmm. again. Um, but Frankfurt and and Berlin um, are are two really really impressive halls that I was looking forward to playing in, um, which would be at the top of my list now. Okay, for sure. performance pieces what's mm-hmm. your favorite piece to, to as a french horn player what was your favorite piece to play in wow i'm not familiar with that one who who, who wrote that oh wow <laughs> yeah he was <laughs> man that's that's a that's a tough question because i you know i i tend to to do it a little bit more by composers than by specific pieces all right at least when i sort of like organize it in my in my head okay so Um, what composer then do you find their writing style to be enjoyable for you as a as a horn player well i mentioned them a little bit earlier um but uh ricard strauss and and gustav mahler were writing kind of at the turn of the 20th century um so they they brought in some romantic elements but added in some more chromaticism and some more juicy crunchy stuff and they also were very horn focused they often wrote for larger sections um, and the horns were were pretty prominently featured um, and they also knew how to w- write well idiomatically for the instrument. So I think those those two composers um, have a lot of different pieces with different sort of technical and emotional aspects. And depending on, you know, depending on my mood, I think um, something from one of those guys would probably be, probably be at the top. Is there a is there a piece that you haven't performed professionally that you would welcome the call? Josh, we're going to be doing X, and that would be a, a resounding yes. I want in. Hmm. Um. Well, so uh, Gustav Mahler wrote nine symphonies, um, and I have played eight of them. Okay. So, and the one that I haven't played is uh, Symphony Number Eight. So, if I that would that would round out my cycle, so to speak. So I think that would probably be at the top of the list. Okay. You you mentioned you you made a pivot. So are you have you have you 
hung up your your spurs? Are you no longer a a, 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 a horn slinger? In a in a manner of speaking, okay. Um, when I when I made the pivot, I you know I I kind of decided to to take my my professor's advice from many years ago and and kind of um, j- dive in with with both feet. Um, so I did I. Um, I sent out an email to everyone that I had played with over the past 15 years with all of my equipment, all of my music. Um, and, you know, within maybe an hour and a half or two hours, you know, everything that I had collected over, over 20 years had, you know, had been spoken for. So it's, um, it's, they're all with people that I have played with in the past. However, um, I did, just recently, um, buy buy a horn. Um, so now I do have a horn, and I I went up to Alaska to play a concert. So I I sort of was was retired, but now I'm only semi retired, and I, I think I'll keep I'll continue to play. Right. Um, so so help me out here once again. I'm that the the kid from the '70s arena rock and roll. So Gibson, Fender, Marshall, things like that. You know, Gretsch. What. And like, so if I, you know, I've heard, you know, we've all, not all of us, but probably a lot of us have heard, you know, Stradivarius, um, Steinway, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's certain brands that transcend, you know, great awareness. I don't know what horn manufacturers there are out there. So for a French horn, what's, what is the, the, the brand of renown for a French horn? Well, that is pretty uh i won't get too into the weeds on this um but it's that's pretty geographically specific oh, okay um there are different so the horn is you know depending on how you count you know 12 to 14 feet of tubing and there are a lot of different ways to wrap it um and there are different bore sizes like the interior um, diameter of the tubing there's different rates at which it expands to go from the tiny um, lead pipe where you put the mouthpiece in out to the bell there are different bell sizes um, and there are different um, playing styles and sound preferences um, so in Europe they favor a specific style of horn and a wrap um, it's made by a German manufacturer called Alexander. Um, and that tends to lend a little bit more nimbleness, a little bit more of a woodwind-like quality to the instrument. Um, but in America, there are two other wraps that tend to dominate. Um, the one that I think most people would be familiar with um, is what was used in the recording studios in Los Angeles for quite a long time. Um, it's a it's a big uh, silver. It's very dark, but it's good in recordings because the sound um, is very close and like gets picked up well in the microphone. So like almost all of the Hollywood film scores that people are used to hearing and they associate these big like you know heroic horn lines with. Um, you know, Star Wars, E.T., all the big John Williams films. Um, that's with uh, a Con 8D, 
it's a larger bore size it's a larger wrap it's silver it's a little bit dark um, but the other school of playing in America is sort of like the Chicago style um, which is a, a guyer is the style of wrap um, it's a smaller horn it's uh, tends to be brass um, and it doesn't sound up close it has a, a different sound quality um, to sort of like the the con 8d style of the film studios but it's designed a little bit more to go to the back of like a 3000 seat hall and to really penetrate and to really come to the fore um, so there's all these different types of horn playing schools um, and then there's these sort of like basic wraps and then now there are a lot of um, custom you know hand built you know these different manufacturers so depending on what kind of horn you're playing there is like a custom manufacturer who is probably at the top okay of of that field. so you, you, you so hopefully you yeah. went out and bought a horn what what horn did you buy uh, so the horn that I bought um, is is a Yamaha, which is like a pretty uh, pretty well known name. They, mm-hmm. you know, they make a lot of different instruments, um, yeah. and they they don't they don't make the best French horns, but they make very good quality horns. Okay. Um, and given that I wasn't gonna be performing as much as I had been heretofore, mm-hmm. um, I didn't I didn't need the quite the top of the line instrument that I had been playing with before. So before, so when you were actively, you know, what were you playing? Um, it was, um, it was a custom horn, um, uh, designed for me by someone named Dan Vidikin. Um, and he, it was called a Lucas and he named it, you know, he named the, the brand after his son. This is interesting. And, you know, this is like, I warned you, we're going to go in the weeds here. Cause I'm, I'm, how does one make, what does, one customize on a French horn. I mean, what, and how did, like, are you fitted for it? What, what did they do for you when you had that horn made? Well, so there are different levels of customization. I mean, you can, you can get valve clusters and valves, um, and you can get lead pipes and you can get bell flares and then you can put them together. Um, I, so I, what he, he made the horn basically just sort of like his, the way that his, his stock custom horn. And then I flew out there um, and we went to like the local auditorium and I, I, you know, played on stage for a while and we talked about how it sounded and how it felt. Um, and then he went back and made some modifications and then we went back and, um, you know, I played, I mean, we, we kind of just went until, until it was, until it was right, until it felt right. So kind of like going in and getting fitted for a suit versus just buying one off the rack. Exactly. Okay. Wow. I had no clue that, that this would happen much less that there's multiple styles and, you know, I, the way you described it makes sense. I just never really thought of it in those terms. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned the pivot, and mm-hmm. you know I see you know when you know I see your day job. You work. You're a you're a real estate broker. 
mm-hmm. in Seattle, right? Do you, let's just ask you this: Are you specializing in anything? Is, have you have you niched down into a certain you know specialty in the real estate space, or? I wouldn't say that I've that I've niched down too much. Okay. Um, I I mean I. I I only do residential transactions. Okay. Um, I think that the the relationship side of this business is um, something that attracted me a lot, um, and I think that the the marriage of um, technical and emotional aspects um, is also really attractive because that's sort of what I had to do as a musician, mm-hmm. um, yeah. especially a classical musician at the the very the very, very highest echelons where, where the difference between, you know, a good day for you and a bad day for you is like, you know, maybe five, five or six notes over the course of two hours of playing. Um, it's sort of that, um, and you, you practice, uh, the science is the practice and how you are able to improve yourself. Um, but then the art is the emotion and in the moment how you react and how you um how you shape phrases and you know that sort of um that sort of combination is is attractive i mean because every person is different every um house is different but you also have to have an understanding of sort of the technical aspects of you know like you have to know a little bit about how financing works. You have to know a little bit about how houses are built. You have to know, you know, things to look out for. You have to be able to read the market. I mean, it's sort of like all these like really basic things that you need to know how to do and that need consistent maintenance. Um, but how they're explained, how they apply to different people's situations. I mean, that's where the art comes in. Okay. So, yeah. Seems like an odd transition musician to realtor. To realtor. <laughs> so what, what, in, what, how did you get in, How'd you get hooked into the real estate business? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so my, my wife, Brooke and I moved, well, we were, we were just, you know, dating, I guess at that point. But when we moved out here in 2016, um, we decided pretty quickly that this is where we wanted to stay. Um, so in 2017, we bought, um, we bought a house in Maple Leaf. Um, and, we were referred to um, an agent through a friend and um, she just provided a, a really incredible sort of, I don't know, concierge level service. I mean, we didn't worry about anything. We like, we trusted her. It would I mean it was a really easy, a really um, honest and, and trusting relationship. And we, we found a house really quickly um, and it was great. And then we were able to, sort of like stay friends with her and her husband over the period, you know, the next four or five years. Um, and she had mentioned on a couple occasions that, that she thought that I would be good at real estate. Um, and even maybe a, a year before the pandemic, I was getting a little tired of all the travel. Um, cause I was on the road, you know, for four or five years in a row, like 50 to 60% of the year. Oh, okay. Um, which is a lot. Um, and so I, I kind of had a conversation with her at that point about whether it would be feasible to sort of do the two things together. 
like cut back a little bit on the music and, you know, sort of like do real estate and music in tandem. And she was like, well, that might work in some places, but like, you know, it's not going to work in Seattle, um, which to her credit was an honest and accurate assessment. Uh, <laughs> and so I kind of, you know, I had a gig to go. I mean, I, you know, I sort of was a, uh, a conversation sort of just information gathering at that point. Um, but then the pandemic hit and I like, you know, like all the, all the performing artists, it was a, uh, it was a pretty tough period. Um, and I, I sort of embarked on this transcription project where I would just transcribe, you know, funk tunes and, and, you know, keep my chops up and have a good time with it. Um, waiting for, for signs of life. Um, but after, I don't know, after maybe six or seven months, I kind of was reading the writing on the wall, um, and seeing how my, how my colleagues who were tenured musicians were, were having a tough time and sort of thinking about how orchestras were going to have to prioritize, um, staying afloat and paying their musicians and how I, I think freelance musicians we're going to take a little bit of a backseat in the recovery. Um, and I, you know, it was a pretty, it was a tough decision. Um, but I, I didn't really, I didn't want to feel like I was waiting on things to happen. I wanted, I wanted to sort of be the decider of my fate. So then I kind of, you know, circled back around to what an alternate path forward would look like. And, um, looked at a lot of different careers, but ultimately ended up coming back to real estate and had a lot of discussions with, you know, the agent that I had, that I had known. And then people at that office and, you know, other people throughout the industry and and decided it would be the right path forward. So, yeah. All right. Okay. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting industry. That is for sure. Um, Yeah. Like I said before recording, you know, I've been doing it almost 20 years. And, uh, yeah. Never, never the same, never the same day. <laughs> no. And, and I, I specialize in a, in a spe- very, spe- I very specific niche. So I'm, um, I, I deal with foreclosures. So I am dealing with, let's just say what I sell and what you sell are very different things. They may be called houses, but they're very different. Um, let's, yeah. yeah. So, um, well, what do you and your wife? Well, oh, I got to ask this question. We got to we got to get to it. We danced around it. You did move to Seattle. You decided to settle on Seattle because of coffee, right? That was that was the 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 thing that you know you at the time you know your girlfriend and you guys looked at each other and said we're never going to get coffee like this anywhere else. We're just going to have to move to Seattle. Exactly. What was the coffee that sold you on Seattle? <laughs> well, that's that's. Uh... Man, that's an interesting question. Well, let me let me let me, back, let me let me let me back let me back you up. Okay. All what right, all is right. you're going to go to your favorite coffee shop? What are you ordering? What what is your coffee beverage of choice? Uh, it's either an oat milk latte or an oat milk cortado, depending on how much espresso I want to taste. Okay. And where, in your opinion, is a great place to get one of those? You know, 
the Macrina on 19th is really close to my office and they do they do a great they do a great coffee beverage for sure okay I have not heard of yeah. that one that's that's yeah. that's actually stump the band that's great um on 19th yeah in in Capel yeah. like 19th and Aloha yeah You'll have to you'll have to go add it to your list. Well, I'm not an oat milk fan, and I'm a, a straight espresso or black coffee person. I really like it. Just you know, simple, strong and dark, strong and dark. Yep. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Okay, give me another one. Because you're Seattle, I you mean, you got to be able to give more than one coffee shop recommendation. I mean, the bar's I mean, the bar's pretty high here. The bar is pretty high, but you know, I make I make pretty good coffee at the house. Okay, so you know, all right, got a little espresso machine and a frother, and okay. So what's the know, es- I, what's the espresso machine at the house? Uh, well, my my wife likes cute things, uh, so it is a Smeg espresso machine. Okay, all right, yeah. And what beans are you typically running at home? Ooh, this is going to be blasphemy, but I'm I'm running a lot of uh, Pete's Major Dickinson blend. That's a great coffee. There's no blasphemy there. That's a great cup. Of well, coffee. I mean, just you know, San Francisco. No, no. Know. But see, you know, so so <laughs> here. Okay, so this now allow me to educate you. Okay, lay it on. There's me. a little coffee company in Seattle called Starbucks. And, oh, and right. you may have heard where of them. Do, you may have heard of them. Where are their where are their shops? Um, okay. yeah, yeah. The shorter answer is where are they not? Um, <laughs> but when Starbucks coffee and tea, coffee Starbucks coffee tea and spices opened up at the Pike Place Market, the three founders were trained in coffee roasting by the gentleman who created Pete's Coffee. Hmm. So he was the the OG coffee roaster of the West Coast. All right. So Starbucks wow. started by being trained by Pete's Coffee. All right. So how about that? So then, a gentleman came from New York, came out here to find out why this little coffee company was buying all these coffee makers. And you may have heard of him. His name is Howard Schultz. Uh, he ended up working for Starbucks. He had a vision after going to Italy that the Starbucks coffee shops should be like the third place, like they are in Italy, et cetera, et cetera. The owners didn't agree with that idea. Howard went on and started his own little coffee company. The, the owners of Starbucks ended up selling to him, right? So Howard Schultz bought Starbucks, and, and, and they, it's now what you know it is. But the other little factoid is, I believe two of the original three owners bought Pete's Coffee. Huh. So... There's no blasphemy there. Pizza's pizza's okay. pizza's good coffee. That, and, and Major Dickinson, I like Major Dickinson's blend. That's you know not that my opinion counts for anything here, but um, that's a good coffee. Now it would have been blasphemy Ooh, if you okay. would have said something like, "Well, Dunkin' Donuts," uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Fold, Folgers. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, it's Folgers in your cup. So you mentioned something earlier that when you guys came out here in the mountains and all that. So what do you, what do you like to do in your free time when you're not out? You know, I'm sure you're practicing your horn some, but you're also out showing houses, doing all those realtor things. 
When you're not doing those things, what do you and your wife like to do for, for relaxation and entertainment? Uh, we, we are out and about a pretty good amount. Um, in the winters we're, you know, we're, we're skiing quite a bit. Um, you know, usually at crystal, um, although we do Snoqualmie and we did do Stevens for one, for one winter. Um, we usually will do a, a ski trip as well, um, out of state just to, you know, change up the scenery a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, summers, camping, hiking, backpacking, lake days all over the place. What, what lakes do you guys like going to? Oh man. Um, well, Crescent Lake out, um, out on the peninsula is great. Mm -hmm. Um, Cachis is, is pretty solid as well. Um, Baker Lake um, at Panorama Point. Um, we, we've gotten a campground out there over Labor Day the last four years, I think. That's it's a great spot. Um, we're, you know, we're pretty close to Matthews Beach, so obviously Lake Washington as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say those would probably be probably be the top lakes. All right, and then I think we 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 were joking this before we hit record, but you know, as you know, we were talking about coffee, and then you mentioned, but we can bring up wine. So, um, are you a fan of Washington wines? Certainly am. Yeah. Are you red or or whites? Uh, I'm a red. I'm a red guy okay. all the way. And yeah, that's not once again. That's not my my genre. But you're you're a white guy. No, a wine to me. Oh, okay. I, I appreciate I appreciate the art and craft of it and the science. Mm-hmm. I have a very uneducated palate, and so a a good wine is lost on me. I just I don't mm. I don't know the nuances of it enough to really say I like this and why. I can just say it tastes good, or it doesn't, and. So I'm not the right person. So I don't go wine tasting. My wine, my, my wine, my wife is the wine <laughs> wine person in the household. I'm, I'm more of a cider person. Okay. But mm, you okay. like reds. So who's doing some mm-hmm. interesting things with reds that you've found here? Well, um, there are a lot of, a lot of AVAs in Washington. <laughs> yes, there I are. think that, yes, yes, there are. um, I think that, because of climate change, honestly, that the sort of the center of particularly red winemaking has shifted um, north from, um, you know, Napa and Sonoma to to Washington. I think they make better wines, um, <laughs> and specifically uh, Red Mountain, which is a really tiny AVA mm-hmm. out in the Tri-Cities. Um, we, um, we have a, a wine club membership at a a uh, place called uh, Cooper out there. Right, okay. Um, is that they don't do any? Is there they don't do any distribution? Is there logo um, kind? Of, is it is it a dog? It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean that's that's our probably our preferred, um, you know, Bordeaux style blend. Um, huh. It would be from Red Mountain. I mean, Walla Walla makes great stuff. Columbia Valley. I mean, you yeah. Know, there's it's hard to hard to go wrong. You've, you've, you say this, um, you know, 
careful what you say because you know if you're if you're saying Sonoma and Walla or Sonoma and uh, Napa aren't producing, you know it's it's moved north. And I once again I don't have the palate, but I would say that a lot of people would agree with that statement now. But Napa is not going to give up the fight. Oh sure, but, I mean it's in an, and again it's all about personal personal preference. But, you know, but I was in Walla Walla, and I was walking by a t-shirt store, and they had the best shirt, and I need to go get one and send it to my friend who's a wine snob in Texas. But it was a uh, <laughs> Walla Walla is for wine, Napa is for auto parts. Wow. That's that's clever. I, I just thought that was brilliant. I love that. And I was I was rushing to go somewhere and I couldn't and I and I went back and they didn't have it anymore. So I gotta find one. But I just thought that was a, a great like let's have fun with this rivalry too, because I think the rivalry yeah. is good for for wine in general when I agree. Yeah, so yeah. how did you find the Red Mountain AVA? Because you're right, that's a pretty small one. Um do you and your wife yeah. go wine tasting around the state? We have done a couple of trips. Um, we, I mean, we go up to, to Woodenville a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a membership at, at Chateau St. Michel, you know, the, the, the big dog. Yep. Um, and they, uh, they have a partnership with Cole Solare, which is out in Red Mountain. Okay. Um, it's Cole Solare is like a partnership between, you know, this like, fifth generation Tuscan, you know, winemaking family and um, Chateau Saint-Michel. And then their, you know, their vineyard is, is kind of at the top of, of Red Mountain. Um, so on one of the trips, we we went out there um, and, and spent a day. And I think we did maybe three places in, in Red Mountain um, and had done, I think we'd done Yakima the day before and then maybe Tri-Cities and then Walla Walla or in and I think that our, all of our big winners were from, from the Red Mountain area. Okay. Is there anywhere that you want to try that you haven't tried yet? Wow. Uh, I, I mean, I I will say yes, but I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can name any names. I I would. Lo- I mean, it's been probably twenty. 2019 maybe was the last time we did a trip. I mean, obviously before COVID. Right. So it would be just be nice to, to go out and, um, and, and, and do another swing out there. Okay. There's so many, so many great places. All right. Another question I typically ask my guests is where's a great place for me to get lunch in your area of the world. So in Seattle, where's a great lunch spot? Uh, I just went to Taurus Ox. Um, it's L- Laotian. Uh, food. It's on Madison, kind of in Cap Hill. Okay. Um, pretty amazing stuff. Really? Taurus Ox. Yeah. Okay. Not heard of that. Yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, I think they're pretty new, and it's not a it's not a huge place. Right. Uh, but the kitchen does some good dishes. All right. Well, give me a second one too. Give you a second one. <sighs> gone recently for lunch it's a little bit different that's a little different than dinner all right well throw, <laughs> what, what about a dinner place what, what do you guys find for dinner well being you know I, 
I think we we love we love sushi. We're right by Toyota Sushi on Lake City, which is a pretty it's a pretty popular spot for us. Okay, just go in and grab some yeah, grab some nigiri and crack open a bottle of wine. And we've got a nice deck overlooking Thornton Creek, so it's a peaceful place to eat it. Okay. All right, my last question for you: What didn't I ask you that we should have talked about? Um. Well, you never asked me what my f- most favorite performing experience was oh, or most memorable. Okay. And I, let's have that conversation. I, That's a great one. What was your most memorable experience as a as a as a musician? You know, and I I sort of yeah, I I feel a little um I feel a little like I I'm turning my back on on my, you know, orchestral people, uh but Without a doubt, the most memorable concert I ever had was uh, was with Metallica. <laughs> I mean, it's not often that you get, you know, twenty thousand people that are screaming and singing along, and I mean, it was it was insane. Most, one of the one of the more memorable memorable things I've ever been a part well, of. Really, what's funny is that we talked about that before we hit record, and I didn't bring it up. So I do want to ask you. <laughs> I'm glad you thank you for reminding me because I would have been really frustrated (laughs) in about 15 minutes. So, okay, you earlier earlier on you you explained how a symphony you know you got you know four or five practices you know you're you're not practicing all that long. So, what was it? I did this. So this was with the San Francisco Symphony, right? This was okay. So did you did the symphony practice with Metallica? Did did you and the actual band? Did you guys actually practice together, or, or we did, yeah, yeah. And so was this in the no? I'm just kidding, a garage or somewhere. But no, how did uh, <laughs> what was okay? So completely radically radical ends of the spectrum musically here. Yes, very much so. How did they take? How did how did Metallica as a classical musician? And there is you know just rock and roll how did how serious were they about practice super serious really super super i mean metallica is they're they're an institution yeah um you know they're a a corporation i mean i think there's 30 people on staff they're you know one of the five highest grossing yeah bands in terms of you know tickets and and sales you know, mm-hmm. in the last 50 years. I mean, they, they, they are serious about their craft and they also have an incredible amount of respect, particularly for the San Francisco symphony being another sort of like cultural institution of the Bay area. Um, and having done this, the S and M show, which was groundbreaking at the time in 1999. Um, I think that they were really, you know, really, really excited to, to get to do it again, um, and be part of, you know, another monumental event in sort of like the opening of the chase center. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, um, we, you know, we got the music and had to sort of like sign NDAs. Um, and then we, they built the whole set and the light show and the stage and the stage was in the round, so the middle of the round was the band, and they were turning in one direction, and then the outer part of the round was the orchestra, and they were turning in the opposite direction. But it was so slow you didn't notice, but by um, intermission, 
you had turned 180 degrees. Each of you had turned 180 degrees. And then by the end of the show, you would turn back to where you started. Oh. But it was so, I mean, there was this crazy light show. So they built this whole set um, in this, uh, another, another big theater. So we could practice there. Um, and then I think we had maybe three or four rehearsals and they were obviously working on their stuff in the off time as well. Um, and then we, yeah, we did a dress, you know, dress rehearsal in the chase center. And then we had, then we had two shows and did, yeah. did you, did you get to spend any time talking to any of the members of the band? Um, a little bit, okay. um, but they, you know, they have security oh. and, um, it was also, it felt, you know, it felt like there was a lot on the line, mm-hmm. um, just with it being such a big event, they didn't, you know, they were, they were, you know, they would interact with us during, like during rehearsals, um, and it breaks a little bit, but, um, it's not like we, you know, went out for a beer. After, right. I was going to say, you weren't sitting, you're sitting around yeah. having beers, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Wow. So how did that performance go? And, you know, obviously it's memorable and monumental to you, but from a critique, critique the symphony's performance during that was, were you guys, cause you said earlier something about, you know, uh, a good day and a mediocre day is born wrong notes during a two hour performance. How was, how was the symphony's performance during the, during that concert? Well, so I think that um, when the attention is all on you, the way it is in a symphony performance, the stakes are a little bit heightened. Mm-hmm. Um, for this, not not that everyone didn't want to do a good job, but um, a little more relaxed. Everyone had a little bit more relaxed, but also um, everyone had huge ear cans on. Um, mm. with sort of like sound dampening mm. um, because it was so loud. Um, and you had a monitor. Everyone had an individual monitor, so you could kind of like turn up different parts of the orchestra, turn up yourself, turn wow. up the band. Um, so it wasn't sort of the... Um, it's hard to tell. I, I mean, you could tell a little bit how you were fitting into certain parts, but like the whole what was going out to the audience was also going through like a, a mixing and, and, you know, mixing board as well. So there, um, it was, it was the most amount of emotion and energy and just sort of like pure adrenaline I've ever felt. Um, and in that case, I mean, that sort of was, is why it's so memorable just being so different. Never thought I would ask a classical musician this question. What's your favorite Metallica song? Wow. Um, you know, probably, probably Sandman. Okay. So, you know, we're talking about Strauss and Mahler and now we're talking about, I'm sorry. Those just don't seem to go together, but so Sandman. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, I, you know, I listen to a lot of rock when I, I mean, I listen to a lot of genres. I mean, I was in New Orleans for six years. Right, I have right. a great love of jazz and funk and listen to a lot of rock. My dad plays guitar. So, you know, I, I'm, you just sort of love the, you know, CCR and, you know, kind of right. Beatles and all that classic, you know, 60s, 70s stuff. So, you know, Metallica, I already was, was pretty familiar with. That's funny. I just, before we did it. It just yeah. seems, you know, it's just like, okay, that one thing doesn't go with the other. Hmm. But it's, but yet it <laughs> probably, 
So when you when you got did do they they put out an album on this one, right? Do they did they record this live and and put it to the market? They what they it's it's on yeah I mean it's on Spotify right. and like they put it out into theaters um, and I th- I don't know I think there was some sort of a talk about like a Netflix documentary but that got waylaid a little bit by um, James went into rehab and then COVID and a bunch of sort of like mitigating factors okay. I think okay. tabled it but yeah do you use Spotify I do yeah so. If you were to pick up your phone and look at Spotify, what what's your playlist looking like right now? What are you what are you listening to? <laughs> well, let me let me go ahead and do that. Let's see let's see what let's, we got here. Let's just see. I mean, it's always interesting to talk to people when they're like, "Okay." Well, I have I have different playlists for different. Well, do you have, so um, I, I'm looking at mine at the same time and Yeah. I get this Discover Weekly. Do you get that? Mm. I, I do get a Discover Weekly. All right. So what's yeah. what's on your Discover Weekly? Let's see. I don't I don't usually go in there to look. But it's um, based on kind of what you listen to. At least this is my understanding. So if you listen yeah, yeah so it's gonna kinda give you variations of what you typically might be listening to. Yeah, if you're on if you're on the um is it in your library or is it on your homepage? It's on the homepage. On the homepage. Yeah, I know I've seen it before, but it is not showing up for me right now. Right. So like for mine, just like to give you an example, um, Mainline Florida by Eric Clapton, Fat Man in the Bathtub Live by Little Feet. Let's see. Uh, Roomba Girl, Nicolette Larson, Your Move, the single version by Yes, Get Rhythm by NRBQ, um, the Garden Part Three by Tea Leaf Green. Never heard of that. Time Out by Joe Walsh. Jumping Jack Flash, but it's by Eric Chilton. You, you get the idea. I mean, it's kind of uh, this. Um, okay, Benny and the Jets by Beastie Boys and Biz Markie. Don't know how that would get in there. Nice, and a nice. B movie Boxcar Blues Live by the Blues Brothers. That's a very random. <laughs> A random snapshot of my musical, uh, what what Spotify thinks I might like. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I <laughs> I wish I could be. I wish I could be part of this. It is not showing up for me. Well, you said funk. What what funk bands did do you enjoy? Because Dayton, Dayton of... had that big funk scene in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean. Trying to think, I should, I you know, was it? Oh. Well, so okay, so I've I've got this one, this one kind of like um, this one little playlist here. It's got, um, you know, Tribe Called Quest and Outcast and Wolfpack, um, and then I've got I don't know, I've got this other one, sort of like, and more like an oldies playlist, like Louis Armstrong and you know Louis Prima and Etta James and. Okay. You know, so you really rich. do have a you do you do have a very broad appreciation yeah. of music. Yeah, and then, then I've got of course the Americana playlist, you know, like you know, Avid Brothers and Alabama Shakes and the Wood Brothers and All right. Crosby Stills Nash and Young, you know, okay. Simon and Garfunkel. It's sorta of, sorta of depends. I try and right. 
try and uh, recognize good good art everywhere. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, listen, I have taken a lot of your time. This has been a lot of fun, but I will release you to your realtor duties and your French horn practicing. <laughs> and um, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're going to go have some sushi. Um, you know, never, never say no. Yeah, exactly. Never say never. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. But Scott, this is, this has been a lot of fun. I, uh, you know, we went, we kind of went all over, all over the country, you know, yeah. <laughs> from Maryland at, uh, you know, yeah. out, to, out to Seattle. Yeah. Um, I, I will say I, that Dayton's I, yeah. never been on the show before. So, you know, you brought Dayton in the house and, uh, well, I might've talked about Dayton, Washington. So, but not Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. yeah. As well, you know, first time, first time for everything. Oh man, I, I appreciate your time. This has been this has been a lot of fun. All right, thank we'll you. We'll have to we'll have to have to grab coffee. I would love that. I would love that. Yeah. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.